Something also exciting happened this week. Uh, the InSight lander landed on Mars. Did you catch that? Yeah. All right, that's pretty cool. Okay, <laughs> two of us. Who said yeah? All right. Two of us think it's cool. All right. I'm an astronomy geek. I'm not an astronomy buff. That would imply I know a lot. But I'm just a geek. I geek out on this astronomy stuff. And, and it, it's incredible what happened to land a rover on Mars. I want us to understand exactly what that means. It's about a car-sized instrument that gets put on the top of an Atlas V rocket. 860,000 pounds of thrust take this into space where it travels about 70,000 miles an hour per, in, into space. That's about 41 times the speed of a bullet traveling through space to hit a planet 300 million miles away. Now, Mars isn't just sitting there. Mars also moves at 54,000 miles an hour around the sun. And so it, it's like shooting a bullet 300 million miles that way, and that bullet travels 35 times the speed of a bullet, hitting a planet that travels 30 times the speed of a bullet. I mean, it's incredible, absolutely incredible. And the descent of the InSight lander was called six minutes of terror. Six minutes of terror. Now, keep in mind, it has to be all automatic. It takes light eight minutes to get from Mars to the planet Earth, so they can't control it from Earth, right? And so it has to be all pre-programmed and it has to work perfectly. At 13,500 miles an hour, the, the, the heat shields are pressing against the Mars atmosphere, nearly burning up. And then there's a separation of a, of a capsule where there's parachutes that, de that deploy. From there, there's another separation of the lander where rockets take it down to five miles an hour. So to go from 13,500 um, miles an hour to five miles an hour in six and a half minutes, you can see why that's called six and a half minutes of terror. And I want to show you a, a video of what happened. It's just a short video, two minutes, but I geek out on this. If you don't, you can roll your eyes, check fantasy football. Wait, but check this out. I think it's pretty cool. It's Monday afternoon. I'm here at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory because in just a few minutes, NASA is about to land its latest probe on Mars. All stations and systems, we can confirm we are in three minus 20 minutes. Its name is InSight. It'll be the first lander to study the interior of Mars. We've been following this mission since it launched in May from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, and we were actually there for the launch, though we didn't actually see anything. Well, there's a rocket in there somewhere. <laughs> the launch was a success, and now more than six months later, we're here to see the next phase of InSight's mission begin. But first, the probe has to get to the surface in one piece, and landing on Mars is an incredibly intense feat a process that has claimed the lives of numerous robots over the last 50 years. So, we're here for the landing with some of the people leading the InSight mission, and we're all holding our breath. With all that prep in place, it's almost time for landing, but we won't actually get to see it happen live. There aren't any cameras on Mars, and one light signal takes eight minutes to reach here on Earth. Everything has to be automated, but if all goes well, the lander will send out an I'm okay beep when it gets to the ground. When that happens, you'll see a lot of happy engineers. Standing by for parachute deploy. 600 meters. Gravity turn, altitude 400 meters. 300 meters, 200 meters, 50 meters, constant velocity, 17 meters, standing by for touchdown. Touchdown confirmed. 
<laughs> Let's just wait. Let's see what they saw. There it is. Wow, what? I am so excited, also exhausted. Uh, it's an incredible feeling. I don't even know how to explain it, right? It's my whole career, Marco and Insight were both successful. Everything went well. I mean, I don't think I'd imagine it would go this well, even in my wildest dreams. I don't know how to describe it. It's definitely a feeling of extreme relief here in the auditorium. Everybody was dead silent right up until the end. And when we got that confirmation of landing, everyone just breathed a huge sigh. We can all celebrate a new spacecraft on the surface of Mars. All right, this is very exciting to people who uh, fancy themselves to be uh, astronomer types. And um, uh, it is an incredible thing to think of the human ingenuity and imagination to make this happen. Now. This kind of great achievement usually happens at the flip side of great dread, right? In fact, that idea of six minutes of terror is great dread. You saw it on their faces. They're just, <laughs> they just can't wait to see, is this thing going to make it or not? And here's the reality of, of, I think, great human ingenuity, that the greatest victories usually follow great dread. The greatest victories usually follow great dread. You look the, at the great victories of humanity, of, of exploration, of science, usually those great victories follow great dread. That's just how we're wired, and frankly, that's how the kingdom of heaven is wired. God has this habit. We see this in Scripture. We see this in human history and in his interaction, that elation comes from dread, that victory comes from defeat, that light comes from darkness, and life comes from death. That's the nature of the kingdom of heaven. In fact, Jesus said this about his own ministry in John 12, 24. He says, very truly I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus knew where his life was headed. He knew his life was headed for condemnation. He knew his life was headed even to a Roman cross. But he says, this is just how the kingdom of heaven works. Unless a kernel of wheat dies, there cannot be a great harvest. This is just the way it works. It's just the way it works in the history of humankind. It's the way it works in the kingdom of heaven. That great victory comes through great dread. And that's the story of the creed. We're studying this creed, the first creed of the first church, found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And that creed follows the life and ministry of Christ into great dread so that there would be great elation on the other side. Follows Christ into death so that there would be life on the other side. Through death, God brings life. Through great dread, God does something wonderful. In fact, the salvation of this world rests on this Jesus by very nature God, who did not regard equality with God, God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself to taking the form of a man, becoming obedient, even obedient to, the, to death on a cross. That's his descent into terror. And God descends his son into terror to take the suffering and sin and shame of the world upon himself, all of it upon himself. He dies for it, dies to it. But through that death comes life. Through that terror comes elation. And that's the creed. The descent into terror and the exaltation of Christ. So every week we recite this. Let's all stand and read this together. And I want to encourage you. Even though it's a little bit on the early side, say this boldly, right? This is our, our sixth and final week through the creed. Let's read this together. Though he was by very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow, that was awesome. Very nice. You may have a seat. Uh, Every week we get a little louder, get a little bolder. This word of God, this creed is being settled in our souls. And it follows the the, the two parts of the ministry of Christ, his descent into terror to the cross and his ascent into glory. It's glorious. Philippians 2, 10 through 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's where this is all headed. Absolute, utter exaltation. Utter, eternal glory. Every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Now that creed in Philippians 2 is actually a quote from the Old Testament in Isaiah 45. In the Old Testament, God is raising up a king, King Cyrus, and King Cyrus would do great things for the people of of Israel. But God says, as he's raising up this king, God says there will come another king, and this king will be God, this king will be savior, and this king will have ultimate authority, this king will have ultimate victory. Here's the prophecy in Isaiah 45, 21. There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn. Now, when God makes an oath, it's the end of the story. Ain't no discussion after this. I've sworn a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. That's where the authority and exaltation of God is headed. That's where the authority and exaltation of God is headed. And, and, And it's not headed there because God is threatening and brooding. This is important. God is not forcing the world to subjugation. If that were so, the creed would look entirely different. The creed would say something like, God is gonna rain down wrath and hellfire and judgment upon all the earth, so you better bow your knee and you better confess with that tongue of yours. That's not what the creed says. The creed says that in the form of God or the very nature of God, Jesus Christ serves and gives and descends to lower and lower places, even to the cross. The very nature of God gives his life on a cross. Because of the selfless sacrifice of Jesus, that's why his name is exalted. Not not because threats of judgment, not because threats of fire, but because Jesus Christ, the full nature of God, shows off God's character. And God's character is one of love and selfless service to us. That's incredible. And because of that selfless love, Jesus Christ is exalted. This is unlike any human authority. Human authority comes by force. Human authority is demanded. Human authority is enforced by violence. Human authority is motivated by threats. That's not the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is motivated by love, and because love wins over all, love is drawing the world to Jesus Christ, and his name is being increasingly lifted up. So the question is, can this New kingdom of love actually succeed because in this world, we don't see a lot of uh, things succeeding out of love. We see a lot of authorities grow because of threats, right? But the promise of Jesus is that this humbled and humiliated Jesus Christ who endured terror and dread for all of us will be exalted so that love wins over all. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. 
Now, there's a few phrases in there that are interesting in the last part of the creed that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, get this, above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth. We don't use these words in English. We do not use these words in English. We get the on the earth. We can understand on the earth. We don't ever say above the earth. We don't ever say underneath the earth when it comes to spiritual things. We just don't. So this creed, especially these phrases, are, are very Hebrew in nature. Now, in order for us to understand the Bible, we have to understand at least a little bit how Hebrews think. Um, and I have so many conversations with people. You know, Rancho's teaching creates discussion, which I love and I want to encourage, right? But as people discuss, I, I have this conversation all the time. I, I tell people, you've got to understand God's word through the lens of, of an ancient Hebrew mind. Well, I don't want to do that. That sounds like a lot of work. I just want to read my Bible in English, and, and can't I just read it like an American in English and be fine? Well, you could do that if you want to be wrong about your Bible. The Bible was written in ancient times. It was written in ancient uh, Hebrew and ancient Greek. And in order to understand the Bible, we've got to at least a little bit understand the ancient mindset. So when we see that Jesus will be exalted above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth, we understand that's, those are not English concepts. They're not American concepts. They're Hebrew concepts. So uh, I did this before. I'm going to do it again. This is the Hebrew cosmology. Hebrews understood um, incompletely that the earth was a flat circle. Hebrews understood incompletely that this dome over the sky, they looked at the sky and they saw from horizon to horizon, it sure looks like a dome to me, so they called the dome a firmament. And their cosmology had a flat circle of an earth with a firmament over the earth. And they used the terms, all that is above the earth, on the earth, and beneath the earth. They used those terms very frequently. And so it was in the vernacular of both the Hebrews and the Greeks that there were these three realms, above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth. So what does it mean that every knee will bow and tongue confess Jesus is Lord above the earth? What is above the earth? Well, again, in the ancient Hebrew mind, above the earth, above the earth consisted of three heavens. So the Bible talks about three heavens, first heaven, second heaven, third heaven. The first heaven in the Bible is the air underneath the bowl. So, you know, there's the bowl of the, of the stars and, and moon and, and sun, and there's air that we breathe. The air that we breathe is the first heaven. The second heaven is the actual bowl, uh, what the Bible calls the firmament, and that firmament bowl has lights that point through and lights that move over it, sun, moon, stars. The third heaven is everything above that, which is every spiritual unseen thing. It's, it's the realm of God. So the more complete biblical concept of heaven is the perfect reign and rule of God, untouched by any physical or spiritual evil. So when the scripture says above the earth, it's referring to everything untouched by physical or spiritual evil. This is the full righteous reign and rule of God. And so when, when Jesus is exalted, he's exalted above the earth. Now, Ephesians 4.10 says this. He who descended, this is Jesus Christ, descending into terror, right? Descending to the cross, descending to death. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. This is the Ephesians version of the Philippians Creed, that he ascended in victory through the cross, ascended in victory, filling all of the heavens with his glory. So Jesus will be forever the exalted Lord of heaven because of his selfless, sacrificial love. There's a second part of this, that Jesus 
will be exalted on the earth, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord on the earth. So now that we have a little idea what it means for him to be exalted above the earth, the reign and realm of God, what does it mean for Jesus to be exalted on the earth? This place that we live right here. It says very clearly, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord on the earth. Now, I wanna be very precise here. We're gonna walk a little five minute journey and I demand your maturity. (laughs) I demand it. This is gonna require maturity. This is gonna require a thoughtful journey. What does it mean that every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord on the earth? What does it mean that every knee will bow to Jesus on the earth? It begs a question. I'm gonna read a lot of this so I don't get in trouble. You ready? I'm still gonna get in trouble. If every single person bows and confesses before Jesus, is every person saved? Now, this is what Philippians 2 says. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. So does that mean every single person who will bow, every single person who will confess, which is everybody, that they are saved, forgiven, child of God? Will every single person who has ever lived enjoy God's eternal forgiving grace through Christ? Now, some say yes. Some say yes. Romans 10.9 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Makes it real clear, right? If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Philippians 2 says everyone will confess. Romans 10 says if you confess, you're saved. So this is a simple equation. If everyone will confess, and if everyone who confesses is saved, then isn't everyone saved? Through Christ, Christ alone, not every religion goes to the same, you know, conclusion. Through Christ... Is everyone saved? If everyone will confess, and everyone who confesses is saved, it seems pretty simple. This is called universal reconciliation. Universal reconciliation. This idea has some support in the Bible. It has some decent support in the Bible. 1 John 2, 2, that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Great, who's the our? Believers, part of the church, we believe in Christ. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sin. By Christ, we're forgiven in a right standing with God by grace. But not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And some evangelical people say, I don't like this verse. I didn't write this verse. He's not only the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, There's this universal reconciliation idea that Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection was sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world and bring the whole world to God. Universal reconciliation. Now it seems that we should all hope that universal reconciliation is true. Doesn't that sound really good? That Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection is sufficient to save all the world? We should all hope that's true. I've actually talked to a few people who don't hope that's true. No way, there's condemnation for... uh, Well, there's something wrong if we don't hope this is true. 1 Timothy 4, 9 through 10 says this. Now get this. To this end we toil and strive. This is the fervent passion of the church. To this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people especially of those who believe. What? Back up. Beep, 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 beep. He's the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. 
Now, that's not very black and white. That's not very crystal clear. In the Bible, there is what's called, and every theologian, every Bible teacher knows this, there's this idea of general grace. There's a general grace that God gives to everyone. And that's the grace of living. It's the grace of breathing and having a heartbeat and rain and food and whatever, right? This is, there's a general grace that God gives to all. God's heart has always been, Old Testament, New Testament, to bless all people, to bless all nations. So even the passages we read, 1 John 2, 2 and 1 Timothy 4, 9 and 10, speak of a general grace. But there is this, especially those who believe, phrases in there. There is a specific salvation to those who believe, so there is a general grace, but then there's a specific grace given to people who believe. And that makes sense, right? Because if I don't receive it, do I really have it? Right? Follow the logic there, and it's biblical logic. Do I really have it if I don't receive it? You know, check me on this. Um, let's say you, you're carrying with you today, for some random reason, reason, a very expensive piece of jewelry, and you want to give it to me. I, I suggest you try this. You're carrying a very expensive piece of jewelry and you want to give it to me. And, and afterwards, you know, I meet you in the hallway and you say, I want to give you this very expensive piece of jewelry. And I look at it and I say, well, that really has no value to me. I don't want it. Do I really have it if I reject it? And the answer, even biblically, the answer is no. If, do I really have God's saving grace if I don't receive it? John 1.12 says this, but to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's pretty clear. I can't detail what God's general grace is to all mankind, believer and unbeliever, but there is general grace given. But I do know the specific grace given are, are, that's given to those who receive, those who believe in Jesus, because if you don't receive it, do you really have it? And so we have the privilege and the pleasure of somebody coming alongside of us and revealing God's grace. God loves you through Jesus Christ. He's forgiven you. There's nothing that stands between you and God. Nothing, not our ignorance, not our sin. Nothing stands between us and God because Jesus paid for it all and he reconciled us to God the Father and he gave that to us for free. It costs nothing. Just receive this incredible news. And for those who receive it, we are living in the reality of being a child of God right here and right now. That's the saved reality. I'm a child of God, unconditionally loved by God. I know it because of what Jesus did on the cross and I am a child of God right here, right now. It's exciting. I believe that I received it. It is mine. There's something about that. So even though we, while we can't dissect what's general grace and what's specific grace, what we do know is it's just better to believe, isn't it? It's just better to believe. There's a whole world out there that's in darkness. They don't know God's love. They're trapped in religion, trying to work their way to God, trying to obey their way to God, trying to be religious enough for God, trying to obey for God. They're trying to get, get something from God and get some sense of love and assurance and hope and, and maybe some sense that I can live forever and they're just scrambling out there. And here's the message of the Christian church. God just loves you unconditionally, selflessly, sacrificially. That's what Jesus did, descended into hell, descended into the hell of the cross for us taking the sin and shame of the world upon himself, taking my failures upon himself, dying for him, and reconciling me to God the Father freely. And as a result, the name of Christ is being lifted up, not because of God's threats, but because of God's love through Jesus Christ. That's why the name of Christ is being lifted up. As we talked about last week, that's why 32% of the world follows him right now. That's why 90% of the world respects him right now. And that's why love right now is becoming the dominant culture on earth right now. Right now, every global force is looking to where there is continued hate and violence and disease and poverty and injustice, and the world is going after it. Why? 
because this world is beginning to embrace the ethos, the character of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus Christ came to deliver. So Jesus is and will be forever the exalted Lord of earth because of his selfless sacrificial love. He's the exalted Lord above the earth, the exalted Lord on the earth, and then finally every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord under the earth. So again, going back to our Hebrew cosmology, above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth. Now, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord under the earth? Well, there's not a lot in the Bible about the concept under the earth. Under the earth is a a spiritual unseen realm of darkness, could be devil, could be demons, right? There's just a, there's just a lot there. Um, the, the abyss, in the Old Testament, there's a word, word called Sheol in Hebrew. It's this mysterious place kind of where the dead go. It's a mysterious place of, of evil and darkness. And then in the New Testament, there's this word Hades, which is borrowing Greek mythology, this place again of the underworld, right? It's just a vague, mysterious, spiritual realm of darkness. It, it, is, it is the place in the mind and the hearts of of Hebrews and Greeks alike, that is this ominous darkness and everybody is saying in ancient culture, I don't wanna get swallowed up in the darkness, right? Even then, Jesus Christ is victorious. Even there, Jesus Christ wins. So Jesus is and will be forever the exalted Lord under the earth because of his selfless sacrificial love. Because of the selfless sacrificial love of Christ, the Father exalts him to the highest place. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess above the earth, on the earth and under the earth. So I'm gonna summarize the creed right now in this slide. Six weeks, let's come down to this, ready? Because of the selfless sacrifice of Jesus motivated by unconditional love, God is exalting his name until every human and spiritual being acknowledges his loving supremacy. I have four minutes left to answer one question. So what? The creed has been six weeks of studying the first creed of the first church. Well, why? Why have we studied literally word for word this first creed of the first church? What's the point? Is the point of studying the creed so that we would be right doctrinally? Is that the goal of Christianity? Is that God's goal to be right? Is that, is that what God ultimately is about? He's just sitting in heaven going, oh, so many of you are wrong and I'm so right and I need you to acknowledge how right I am. I want you to imagine this, um, this scene around the Treadway dinner table. I get my kids around. I had all four kids this weekend. I'm very happy about that. Tons of fun spending time with them, and, um, but it's dinner time, and so I need to quiz them on who I am because they need to be right about who I am. All right, kids, here comes the quiz, and they're in terror. Why? Because if they are wrong about who I am, there is going to be fierce judgment. So I say, okay, kids, what city was I born in? Oh, and they're, oh, I don't know, I better get this right because my, the good graces of my dad really come to us because we're right. And so, okay, they're, they're trading us. Riverside, California, yes, he was born in beautiful Riverside, California at the incredible General Hospital right there. Good job, kids, you have my blessing. Now, when is my birthday? On what date I was born? Oh boy, kids have such trouble with their parents' birthday sometimes. And they're getting together. Okay, we, your birthday is 12, 12, 70. No, kids, you are wrong, that's your mother's birthday. How dare you remember hers but not mine and fierce wrath is coming your direction because you were wrong about the facts of who I am. A lot of us believe that's who God is. That the whole point is for us to be right about our doctrine. And if we're right about our doctrine, all kinds of theologians and pastors are debating, we've got to be right about our doctrine because the Heavenly Father is up there really mad at us and he wants us to be right. Almost as though when we die, we're going to stand before him and there's a big quiz, a doctrine quiz. (laughs) Oh boy. 
and we better get it right. And if we're wrong, he's putting, pushing a button and off we go into hellfire. That's what a lot of people believe. It's a big doctrine test. So is God just interested in us believing the right doctrine for doctrine's sake? He just wants us to be right? Or maybe believing the right doctrine motivates a wonderful new way of life. I'm going to pick this one, not just because I like it more better, but because that's exactly what the creed is couched in. The creed that we studied for six weeks is bookended by why the creed is important. The creed establishes the right belief about God's grace so that we would then live a gracious life. I'm gonna read to you the preamble and the postscript, you ready? Here's the bookend before the creed, which is why the creed exists, you ready? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then the creed begins in verse six. Why did God give us the creed? So that we would do nothing with selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's why we have the creed. Well, what about the postscript? The bookend after the creed says this, therefore, because of the creed, because of this doctrine, my beloved, you've always obeyed. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And what does that look like? What does it look like for us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling? For it is God who works in you to both will and to work for his good pleasure. So do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Why did God give us this creed to believe? Because if we believe that creed, the truth about who he is, the truth about his sacrificial love through Jesus Christ who descended into the hell of the cross to take the sin and suffering of the world upon himself and because of that to rise again and be exalted above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth. Why did we have that creed? So that we would love like Jesus. The right creed motivates a right life. The right creed motivates a right life. If I were to summarize the preamble of the creed, I would say in humility, count others more significant than yourself, right? In humility, count others more significant than yourself. If I were to summarize the postscript of the creed, I would say do all things without grumbling or dis disputing. In other words, it's really simple. It's almost too simple. It's almost laughably simple. The reason why God gave us the creed is to be selfless and don't be a jerk. Be selfless, don't be a jerk. I'm not going to do this, but if I had us all stand again to close, I'd say, let's all say together, be selfless, don't be a jerk. The right creed motivates the right life. Why do we live a life that's selfless? Because we know our God is selfless, and he proved that through Jesus Christ, who gave and gave and gave and descended, descended, descended to save, to forgive us, to live for our benefit. Why did God exalt him? Because love wins and love is exalted. Be selfless and don't be a jerk. We just spent six weeks to get to that. And I think every bit of it was worth it. We can accept this. We can receive this by belief. I'm going to close with a prayer of belief. And we have baptism today. It's a beautiful day to be baptized. Um, December in California, my gosh. It's a heated pool out there. And today you can confess. Today you can confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. There's a pastor out there who's going to ask you a few questions. Do you believe in Jesus? You believe he died to forgive your sin and rose again from the dead to give you life and you can confess with your mouth, yes. And then your knee will be bowed in baptism. 
and he will be gently taken under the warm water and lifted back up again as a symbol of God's grace flooding over you. Today could be the day, maybe for many of you, that you can confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and bow your knee before him. Not because God is a brooding threat and you need to escape his fiery wrath, but because God's a God of love who sent his son, the full nature of God, to become obedient to the point of death for you. Let's pray. God, we honor you, we thank you, we exalt you. Not because we are trembling in fear before your might, which we certainly could do, but because we believe this creed of Philippians 2, that your character is on display through Jesus, who humbled himself, who descended from the heights of being in the very nature God to the depths of death on a cross. He did that as a, as a show of selfless sacrifice to forgive the world, to take on the sin and suffering of the world, to die for it. And because of his love, you rose him from the dead in victory and you exalted him and you continue to exalt him above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth. And we thank you for your grace, some of it universal, some of it particular to those who believe. So we believe in Jesus Christ even now. We confess with our mouth and in our hearts right now that Jesus Christ is Lord that he is the full expression of God, that he died on a cross to forgive our sin and reconcile the world to himself, that he rose again from the dead to give new life and to show that love truly wins. Love is the victor over all evil. We place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ at this very moment, confessing him as Lord and bowing our knee before him. It is a great privilege and honor to know you and your love through Jesus Christ. Help us to, to be loving. Help us to live as people who love like Jesus. We are imperfect at that, but with every passing day and every passing conversation, we want to learn to love more perfectly like Jesus by your power and strength through Christ. In his name we pray and everybody said, amen.